G'day humans, welcome to the safe space for dangerous ideas. Here's one for you. Uh, what makes Apple, Apple? And what makes Google, Google? And what makes Tesla, Tesla? How much of that has to do with diversity of thought? And if so, if a lot, then what does diversity of thought actually mean? How do we bring diversity into companies and have companies be creative and agile in an increasingly chaotic world? This is something which today's guests have devoted their lives to. Their names are Andrew and Gaia Grant. They've written a couple of books. One is called Who Killed Creativity and How to Get It Back? The other is called The Innovation Race, How to Change a Culture to Change the Game. Uh, Andrew has presented at TEDx in Hong Kong at the Asia-Pacific Economic uh, Corporation CEO Summit uh, at the Prime Minister's Office of the United Arab Emirates, all over the place. And Gaia is an academic who has presented her papers on sustainable innovation leadership. What does that mean? We'll find out at a lot of global conferences and corporate events for big companies like PwC and Boeing. Their basic gist is how do we take what we understand about education, about educating young people, about creating creativity and innovation, and how do we apply that to capitalism, to big organisations? And at a time where it's possible for big organisations to fail very, very quickly and become behemoths very, very quickly, it's an interesting uh, chat to try to dig into the minds of people who understand this balance between wanting to retain what's good about companies from the past, but also be nimble enough to embrace the future. I hope you enjoy this chat as much as I did with Andrew and Gaia Grant. So I'm fascinated by creativity, obviously, being a creative person. I'm fascinated by innovation. I think of the two as being similar, if not synonyms. You guys don't seem to. What's the difference? Most people do interchange them. Um, so I don't think it's major, although creativity tends to precede innovation because you need creative thinking in order to innovate. But creative thinking was the buzzword about five or ten years ago. Now everyone likes to talk about innovation. But, Jay, you've got a different perspective because you've got the more academic version of it. Well, I would say the same thing. I'd say you absolutely need creative thinking before you can innovate. Innovation and being talk, the practical implementation yeah, of the creative Yeah, we talk spirit. about innovation all the time without thinking, well, have we developed creative thinking? Have we developed a culture that supports creative thinking? Have we focused on that capability, that skill? And so we always start with creative thinking whenever we run an innovation program. We don't presume that people are creative and we, understand, we believe that people can develop their creative thinking. In fact, that's part of my research and it's, it's part of what we've looked into for a long time. Uh, and then we focus on, well, once you've got those creative thinking capabilities, how can you innovate? So how can you come up with those practical ideas, models, inventions, uh, that are going to make a, ch- a difference. And how do you stimulate those? How do you stimulate those creative thinking capabilities in people who don't feel like they've got them? Well, first of all, I think what we've seen is ninety-eight percent of children score high in creative thinking, and only two percent of adults. So somewhere hmm. along the line, we've lost it. Now I don't know, Josh. You might be one of the two percent. <laughs> um, Much as the teachers tried to drill it out of me, I still yes, have exactly. a scarec of, yeah. uh, of well, creativity. Well, you know, it probably has been educated out of us because school right. rewards correct answers; it doesn't reward creative answers. So I think, um, you know, the challenge. So, well, let's just pause on that for a second. Yeah. That's fascinating, right? The idea that we might have constructed. Uh, a means of educating 
the next generation of people that actually impedes our ability to get our arms around the biggest challenges that we face because it requires them to conform to answers that we've already figured out are the right ones. Yeah, school spits, school, school, you know, the old-fashioned way of school, it is changing, but traditionally it gives you information and then at the end of the term or semester it asks you to spit it back. So it's not asking you necessarily to be creative. You know, it is changing. They are, you know, trying to flip it around and get people to think creatively and think critically. Different countries are different. So obviously I think Australia is fairly advanced in that area. But typically most people are just being fed information, told to give it back. And it's not really helping with creative thinking and critical thinking. Is is there a – sorry, jump in. I was going to say it's still not really about – completely following your passion, following your curiosity, following your interests. It's about sticking to a curriculum. So there are certain standards that you need to achieve, certain hoops that you need to jump through to get through the system. And that can kill, you know, individual creative thinking. And yet there's also a certain kind of satirical cliche of the Portlandia, Steiner, uh, Montessori child who is, uh, you know, allowed to chase butterflies around the park all day and never actually learns anything because they're following their spirit, their inner spirit, um, how do you do the creativity stoking without falling into that cliche? I think you need to do both. I think you need to allow people to be creative, but you also obviously, we, we do live in society. There is a, you know, we can't be too idealistic. We do need to achieve things. So I think, I think the danger is the rote learning type of school, which we're now moving away from in most countries. And yet, all. I mean, but in a discipline like physics or engineering, there really are a whole lot of right answers and wrong well, answers. Well, that's right. So in that case... As you said, different. So I think that brings us to a really core part of my research, which is that you need both. It's both and. It's not either or. So, yes, we need to have open um, exploration, really, really important for creative thinking, but we also need to learn to work within parameters. We need to appreciate that there are going to often be restrictions or limitations to what we can implement. It's important to explore and to push both boundaries simultaneously So this then leads into the whole innovation process, which is really about exploration and preservation. So both those breakthrough, new ideas, risk-taking, as well as looking at how can you ensure that you're developing systems and structures and incremental development that ensures sustainability over the long term. Are you talking about environmental sustainability, cultural sustainability? What does it mean? (laughs) What does sustainability mean? Well, it means that you don't just have great ideas that die. It means that we're thinking long term. And of course, that incorporates also, you know, the planet, you know, social systems, etc. So that, that notion of let's just generate great ideas, it's not enough. Let's just um, stick with what we have and incrementally develop that, that's not enough. So let's do both. And I've looked into uh, some really interesting research from 60 years ago. There was this, um, this, this guy called Ariete who looked into creative agenic cultures or cultures that produce an unusual number of geniuses. And what he identified was that there are a number of different factors that support these, these, uh, the development of creative geniuses. So it's not just genetics. There can be environmental factors, socio-political factors, economic factors, and so on. And there are certain cycles, certain times, periods of time in history where everything's converged and you get an unusual number of geniuses, like the Renaissance period. 
And from the core factors, I distilled it down to uh, four key factors, which is you need freedom. So you need a certain amount of freedom to think openly. And that's supported today when you look at democracies. You do get a, a greater number of patents. You get a, um, higher scores in global innovation rankings, creativity rankings, and so on. You also need to have collaboration. So there needs to be a, agreeability. There needs to be support for each other. Um, you also need flexibility, so you need to be able to adapt. Uh, and, and you also need um, an openness to new ideas. So you think of uh, times like um, the printing press when that was developed during the Renaissance period. There were lots of ideas individually developed in different cultures and countries around the world. So China came up with an idea of the printing press, maybe in, in collaboration with Korea. And then you had, um, you know, Egypt was was developing the the, the, the inks and the plates. It was more about the reeds and the, the inks and so on. And all of these ideas came together in Europe. And so there was that openness to new ideas. There was, there was that connection, that creative collaboration, uh, that freedom to think, and it all converged into you know, a new invention. So those four concepts are really critically important. And yet, think and about... And so was the fourth openness, did you call it? What did you yes, call the fourth? Yes, so openness, openness yeah. yeah. So think about, though, if you have too much of those things. So they're really important... If you have too much freedom, you'll have no clear direction. It could be chaos. If you have too much openness, then um, you're not going to have enough focus. If you have too much collaboration, that can lead to groupthink. If you have too much flexibility, that, that can lead to no stability. So we actually need um, this balance or to hold the tension between the paradoxical positions. So you, while you need... Uh, freedom, you also need some control. Mm. And again, too much control is oppression. <laughs> While you need openness, you also need some focus. Too much focus can become disconnection, disengagement. So while you need collaboration, you need some independent thinking. And while you need some flexibility, you also need some stability. So we've tended to focus on innovation as this, as I said, this, this um great ideal of having open new thinking breakthrough ideas taking risks without recognizing there's this other side that holds the tension and ensures that we have both creative thinking and practical implementation if you have one without That's the sustainable. other sustainable mm. yeah, if you have one without the other it will skid off the tracks right whether it's a company or even possibly a country or just a culture if it's too much of one, it's you know if you think of it going down a road, mm. it skids off. I mean, it's, it feels like for the past ten or twenty years, the dominant industries that have been growing the fastest, namely the tech industries in Silicon Valley, have very much had an ethos of fail fast. I mean, literally move fast and break things was the the slogan. Was, was the slogan? Yeah, <laughs> that's interesting, isn't it? Well, it's I mean, changed. I mean, if you think of you know how Mark Zuckerberg, he, so that was, was it, for it, people who don't know Facebook's original that's right, slogan was move fast was and move break fast things. And break that's things. right. So if you could say that was heading down the exploration side of the road as, 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 as fast as possible. And then last year he decided to blow $13 billion on his great ideas that we don't, you know, who knows where they've gone. And the metaverse, yeah, by, you know, well, yeah. maybe it was before his time, I don't know. But the point is, you know, that was like going so far off the road of freedom and, you know, I'm going to go and do it myself. But this year is now the year of, um, they're calling it the year of efficiency or the year of, uh, you know, pulling back. We're seeing a lot of jobs being lost. So it's like they've gone right across to that left-hand exploring side of the road for the last 10 or 15, 10, 5 or 10 years. And now they've gone too far on that exploring side. So now they're pulling back. 
and a lot of the tech companies are now pulling across to the preserving side. So you see people cycle backwards and forwards towards it. And the companies that are sustainable are the successful ones that can balance that tension. Everyone's got got tension. It's whether they can use that tension to pull them forward or whether that tension completely rips them apart. So if if the the sustainable companies or countries that, that survive will keep that tension in check. And if they go too far to one side of the road, they'll get pulled back again. The ones that don't survive, which is what I'd call back to your definition of sustainability, the ones that don't survive are the ones that just go... You can think of a, a Formula One race, skidding, full mm. steam ahead, hit that left-hand corner and just keep going. And is, and there, an, is there a natural trajectory that you notice among successful, sustainable entities, be they countries or companies, in the yin and yang between those two poles? Like do you start off in a highly exploratory mode and then That's move into a more <laughs> conservative mode? Ideally, yes, you need to have that openness, that freedom for thinking, that that collaboration, that flexibility to generate those original novel ideas. If you don't, you're going to sort of be stuck in continuing to do what you've always done or in your habitual behaviours or patterns or whatever. So yes, ideally you want to start with exploration and at some stage you're going to have to then say, all right, now we need to ground those ideas. We need to ensure that they're really practical and implementable. And so, and sorry to interrupt, but then how, how, do you, how do you avoid stagnation and conservatism? Like at what point then, do you Then you don't stop the... there again. You've got to keep that cycle going. So I, I've, I've got this diagram of a spring where you're constantly stretching, you're going from one side to the other, you're stretching backwards and forwards. So, you know, after you've had that initial exploration phase, you've pulled back, you've put a few systems and structures in place, then you've got to look at, well, how do we move to the next phase? How do we ensure we're not stagnating? How do we ensure that we're we're pushing forward and continuing to innovate? So it's it's a constant process. And you need to know where the boundaries are. I don't, you know, if you don't know, if again, if you go back to the racing car driver, the really good ones can go right to the, you know, almost millimetres to the side of the road as they take that racing line. We're not really good, so I'm not going to go right to the side of the road. Um, you know, good on you if you think, like, like Mark Zuckerberg thinks he can go right to the side of the road and blow $13 billion. I don't have that sort of money to sort of throw around. Right, but isn't it the case that if he wasn't the type of person who had the kind of cojones to do that, then he wouldn't have created Facebook exactly. in the first place? Exactly. So you don't actually know exactly. where the boundaries are. No. I mean, you know, every failed every failed titan thought he knew he or she Absolutely. knew where the boundaries were, and it's only through... I mean, Elon Musk is only an Elon Musk because he hasn't failed yet, and eventually if he fails, then he will be that failure, that failure of a we guy who went we too hear, far. We won't hear about him because it's survivorship bias. So you, you own, this is the danger of us worshipping these sort of entrepreneurs and thinking we can create a... You know, they, they go on and they do their TED Talk and they come up with their five stages of how they were successful. Mm. We need to look at all innovation leaders, not just the outliers that happen to be the ones that were in the right place at the right, right time. Right, and, 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 you know, maybe... Mark Zuckerberg was, was trying to pick up chicks at university. And that's where Facebook came from. Right. He didn't have this strategic plan to, to build this huge mega. Well, I mean, to, to give him credit, I think that the proof is in the pudding in the terms of the longevity of that particular company up until now. You can tell me why I'm wrong on that. But I think, I mean, I take your point. It, the point is more starkly obvious in the case of, for example, I remember chuckling to myself when Captain Sully Sullenberger did a world tour about uh, leadership in times of crisis or something like that. And I was like, 
I mean, yeah, yeah. It was one thing. Like it was a, it was an accidental heroism. Exactly. You did your job as a pilot. You landed that plane. Good on you. But there are lots of other. There are thousands of other pilots around the world who would have successfully pulled that off. You got lucky in a way that you were in the one scenario in which your training was able to kick in. You know, the media tends to study and want to worship. I mean, any of these guys could write a book on the seven successful stages of leadership, and they join the other thousands of stages of leadership. But because of survivorship bias, we've got to be careful. We need to look at the aggregate. And let's face it, most of us are a little bit more average than these outliers. Mm. Um, and who wants to go to Mars with Elon Musk anyway? I mean, dear leader that's going to publicly shame us and have a cage right, but, fly but, when he wants to solve a problem. So, t- so talk to me about these, about people who truly do stick out b- above and beyond the pack, like the Zuckerbergs and the Musks. It can't just be that they, like in the case of a Musk, there are so oh, many different brilliant. frontiers on yes. which he has done yes. things that other people couldn't do. So toxic as his personality might be from his company that bores huge holes to SpaceX and to, I mean, to all of these different, and to Tesla, you can't have a strike rate that no. strong without bringing something to the table. What is so that So we need those people and we need the other people who are going to come in and help to ground the ideas and help to support them. So we need to recognise what is our own personal bias. You know, do I have a bias towards exploration? Great. You know, I'm going to bring a lot of um, genius ideas to the table. Can I work with others who are going to help to ground those ideas? Because we can't have everything. Does we can stretch need, does him by I just want to go back and challenge yeah, you on Facebook. In, within so his organisation. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Facebook's been around for a long time. In the scheme of things, it is it is but a blip of a second mm, on the planet. Yes, of so course. But what? But, no, but, but just a long time in the sense of, in the in the in the world of tech, yes, you can tech. things move so fast Correct. that you know an incumbent the size of Facebook with as many liabilities as Facebook has had over the past sort of three or four years mm. and as much bad press as it's had and as many false starts and mm. as many successful potential. Uh, intruders onto its turf like Instagram and Snap and so on. The fact that it's still as successful as it is, I mean, to me indicates that he has some idea of what he's doing. Oh, at the moment, it's, it's you know, obviously the, the road's been navigated well. But I mean, if this was a couple of years ago, we'd be talking about MySpace. And, and Netscape. Sure. So I think, you know, I think, you know, if we, if we, if we use the innovation race as like a TV reality show, we're, we're in a season at the moment. So what did they sure do wrong? That, what did we, they do wrong? Which ones? MySpace and well, I don't think Net, they, I don't think they could see the writing on the wall. I mean, Codex, the classic example, I know it's been over years, but they were, you know, they define themselves as a chemical company, not as a saving memories company. So when it, when tech moved on, they stayed as a chemical company developing film rather than seeing themselves as a, you know, creating memories. Uh, ironically, Kodak developed the digital camera, but it got pushed away because the those in power that wanted to keep Kodak as it was were afraid of the innovation that was coming. And they knew that if you're in power and innovation comes, it tends to bypass everyone that matters. Mm. So those in power want to hold on to that preservation because it's very threatening for things to overtake them. So if you, it's better almost to look at the companies that have come and gone uh, you know, past seasons than the ones that we're, the, than the ones we're currently in at the moment. Because you know, in any of those TV shows, you know, you never know who the winner will be until the, the final, ultimate winner. until the <laughs> ultimate five course, minutes where they get the rose. You're very they... good at picking it, That's as right. I sometimes am. I'm the <laughs> Master Chef winner. Or well, something. you get across that line, you know, and it's all manipulated by the powers up top. So I think it, it is actually better to talk about what the, the ones that have cycled around. And who knows? Maybe we'll come back in five years' time, and we might still be happily talking about Apple. Or happily not. 
Apple's interesting because it it was at its best when it had the dynamic tension of Steve Jobs and Tim Cook because one of them was an incredible explorer who, by the way, got kicked out of his company several times. And if it wasn't for a couple of moves, we might never have heard about Steve Jobs, but there would have been another one. But it's the combination of Jobs and Cooks that was... See, I'm not sure about that. I I just don't believe believe the people who were that extraordinary... another one in a billion. Like, how many times does he have to get kicked out of his own company (laughs) and and kick to the curb and then come back... Well, that's his optimism. ...before you're willing to concede that the guy is a freak? Oh, he was. There's no (laughs) question about it. But but in but in terms of it was the app it was the it was the cook behind Steve Jobs that made things happen. Now that you've lost one of those, we're seeing a guy that is brilliant at processes. The innovations are still happening, but certainly not as much. Very incremental mm. compared mm. to very good at tightening things, buying companies, selling companies, really, really good at that. But it's going to be interesting to see where Apple goes now that it's lost that tension between the creative genius and explorer versus the more preserving process person. There's an interesting, uh, by the way, if you sometimes see me typing, I'm making notes to myself. I'm not texting, uh, you know, uh, a girlfriend or something. Um, <laughs> I would have thought you were a brilliant multitasker <laughs> if you were texting at the same well, we'll time. We'll get on the multitasker. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'd love to. So uh, one other thing while just before we leave Apple is that a lot of people attribute Apple's success to, to the fact that, well, in part, the fact that they've never – They've never tried to be the very, very first mm. to to do things, right? They do things very well a little bit later than everybody else does. You know, the, the BlackBerry already existed uh, before they brought out the iPhone. They haven't really gotten into the artificial intelligence game yet. They haven't got into the VR headset game. Well, well just started, ju- ju- just yeah. started yeah. right? But, I mean, they're three years behind everybody yeah. else. So yeah. they sort of wait, they see the lay of the land, mm. and they go, well, we're going to do it right and then blow everybody's minds rather than having a first mover advantage is there do you guys have any thoughts about that well, i think they're just strategically very clever because the first mover advantage the the, the the original explorers you know as you said survive or die literally i think maybe the ones that are just hold back a little bit and let those first people go out and make the mistakes i mean you know we do a lot of keynote talks rule of a keynote speaker is never go first yeah because <laughs> they're still playing around with stages and audio visual let someone else go first mm, mm. so i think there's always a danger of going first and i think maybe apple have been you know very strategically careful in the way they do that. I've also heard Apple talked about as a design company rather than a tech company. So the tech companies come along, they do their thing, and Steve Jobs goes, oh, let's let's put in a really simple design feature, mm. which is one button, Yeah, yeah. and uh, let's improve on the, the design of, of, of a product that's worked really well, and then they take off. Yeah, make it sexy and charge a lot yeah. of money for it. So yeah, it's a consumer it works. Yeah, <laughs> oh, and their branding is amazing. I mean, you know, every everything they've got is got their own name behind it. It's mm. not a touch screen. It's whatever. It's not a brighter screen. It's a what are they calling it? The, the new type of screen. They've every, they've sort of almost. Well, it can't be that good branding if you forgot no. about yeah. it. <laughs> I was going to say, what is it? What is it? <laughs> oh, it's the, okay. Got me. <laughs> this fantastic, memorable name it escapes me at the moment, but nonetheless, it was really good. But uh, yeah, but they keep. But they keep away from generic type of branding. They've, they've, they've put their name on everything. Instead of earphones, they're AirPods. Instead of, yeah. instead of the augmented reality, it's the Pro Vision. So they're and very, it wasn't they're something like stories in your pocket or songs at 30 Oh, that's right, yeah. I mean, 30 class- tunes in your pocket rather Yeah, than the classic computer. one is Bill Gates would get up at his, you know, at his product launches and talk about all the specs of the computer and most of us would go. And the, and the people in the, in the room would go, wow, that's great, Bill, you know, you've now managed to squeeze this many megapixels into whatever. And then Steve Jobs gets up and says 10,000 songs in your pocket. Yeah, and straight right. away the world goes, yes, I want that, I can buy that. Mm. Now, it's funny that my son, who's heard me give that talk many times, said, 
that's interesting, Dad, because when Tim Cook gets up now, he goes back to telling to selling specs, mm. um, which so, shows the which two shows different approaches. Which shows the explorer and the preserver. He, mm. Steve Jobs was creative in his branding as well as his design. It was the whole concept. So it is interesting. But but as I said, we're in the current season of Apple, so we'll have to come back and talk about that one at a later stage. And on the evolution of companies, I mean, you were just reminding me of a company like Netflix that starts by mailing out DVDs in this very narrow uh, business model and ends up completely revolutionising and overhaul how we produce entertainment and media uh, the world over. Um, it begins with offering you essentially access to everything. You're going to be able to get any movie you want on your little DVD. Then, of course, it creates a whole new way of consuming media. Everybody else tries to get on the action and says, well, hang on, why are we allowing Netflix to sell our Disney movies or our Paramount movies? Or, uh, we should have our own intellectual property. And all of a sudden you realise that now you have a lot of different things to subscribe to and maybe some of the movies that would otherwise have been available on a premium, a small boutique premium cable channel, which is some 1932 black and white, I don't know, Buster Keaton film or something, is no longer available at all anywhere. And I've been wondering lately about the sort of, I don't know, the common, whether there's like a, a Nobody is looking after the kind of common interest of the culture as where as companies are trying to move fast and break things, right? Everyone's in this very exploratory create creative phase of disrupting the industry. But I can no longer see Kramer versus Kramer, or to take an example, I don't know whether that's true, but some like movie that I loved that is just no Arlington Road. That was the movie. I wanted to look at watch Arlington Road, you know, like a, You couldn't find it anywhere? It's nowhere. Interesting. It's nowhere. So is there a is there like a is there a collective action problem in I just competition? I just think they're profit profit driven, and you know, mm. I mean, Netflix was successful. Again, it was able to transition back to the original thing. Netflix transitioned from mailing DVDs to streaming because its vision was so strong. It didn't define itself as a mailing DVD company like Blockbuster did. Um, so when when innovation moved on and tech moved on, Netflix was able to move with it whereas Blockbuster wasn't. So a lot of it is how you define yourself, the vision that you give. And, you know, Netflix was very famous for its um, mission deck or whatever it's called. It was a PowerPoint slide deck that had a lot of visionary stuff in it that was that was telling a narrative beyond just we are simply labelling DVDs. So we work a lot with hotels. And I often laugh that the successful hotels, the ones that, I mean, at the end of the day, a hotel sells bums on beds. Um, but the successful ones are the ones that are selling a whole image and a whole lifestyle. They're not just selling bums on beds. And so, you know, the hotel industry is being disrupted at the moment. And if you're just selling bums on beds, well, you could find yourself in trouble. So the ones that will succeed are the ones that are selling an organisational narrative or a story. They're not just selling a product. Because is if that, the product changes, you can't keep up with it. Is that marketing bullshit, though, that they're selling on top of the bum on the bed? I, to I agree. think it's deeper than that, though. Uh, so a company... We've worked with Mercedes-Benz and, and sort of in the past, they talked about we're no longer a car company. Well, we're not about vehicles. We're about mobility. And that opens up your imagination because then you're saying, all right, we're not just going to stick to 
producing cars, different mm. versions of cars. We're actually going to think way beyond that to how is mobility going to be happening in the future? What are we going to be doing differently? Interesting point that you brought is a bullshit from a marketing perspective. Look, yes, there's too much. I mean, those of us that travel, and I know you do, you know, there's so much flowery stuff. You almost want to gag yourself and when hotels. Oh, I'm not saying it doesn't work. I mean, it sometimes well, it, it works on me. Except I when hotels and countries use brochures of, that are not of their own country or hotel, <laughs> which, a couple, I think one, which one just of the, happened. It just happened yeah. with one yeah, of the, yeah, Philippi- the, the Philippines. Philippines. Yeah, so there's a hotel in Bali that was. That, yeah video these beautiful beaches and I said to the sales manager that's that's the Noosa Dua side of Bali not Jimbaran she said no it's not because like, we lived there exactly <laughs> we lived on the beach like. in Jimbaran and yeah, we she, went that's <laughs> not she came back to me a couple of months later she said I would never do that so yeah. you look there isn't the degree of bullshit but I think Jaya's point's really interesting and that is that internally it helps a company become more creative because if a car was just sticking to selling Opens cars yeah then all you're going to be doing is innovating around improving the car side of it mm. if these new car companies want to innovate and and who would have thought that with Mercedes that Apple and Google were going to be their competitors Mm. even with banking who would have thought that Apple and Google were going to be their competitors so instead of Mercedes trying to benchmark themselves against Mercedes or Audi they need to benchmark themselves against something bigger if they're just selling cars they won't innovate or they might get a better engine or a better tires if they now see themselves internally forget about the marketing bullshit if they see themselves internally as a mobility company they're no longer just selling mm. cars. And again, we're in that season. So who knows where the car companies will go. So it takes away the constraints. Yeah, right. So there are maybe two components there to that sprinkle of pixie dust that you're talking about that's on top of things. There's the internal component about what are we what are we up to as a company and what are we what is our mission? And then there's the consumer-facing side of things, yeah. which well, is how do we make... Because yeah, it works. I mean, it works. If, I am, if I've been away from Australia for more than a few months and I get on a Qantas plane and I hear oh, I still call Australia home... Right, you know, then the the tugs plugs at the heartstrings. I used to fly, you know, a lot between New York and LA on United, and they'd always have George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue playing when you enter the plane, and it makes you feel a certain way. You know, if you know hotels, people, you know what a W hotel is like, very strong brand, you Mm. know, which I don't like, but Mm. like you you walk in and you know exactly Mm. what the kind of mood is, and that to me is all fluff. I mean, it's just nothing. It's got nothing to do with the with the actual service that the airline or the hotel is and providing. And you're uh, an example of uh, Four Seasons. But it works. We, well, Four Seasons we work with a lot. They're the number one branded hotel in the world in terms of their marketing value. And it's been really interesting trying to understand what made them so good. They, you know, I remember one GM that won the best hotel in the world three years in a row would used to start every meeting, morning meeting. Most GMs would start a morning meeting with the numbers and the figures, and then they'd be emotionally on a roller coaster. If the numbers are good, everyone would be happy. If the numbers were bad, they weren't. But this GM would start every meeting by saying, what can we do better today than yesterday? Let's look at the customer reviews. And so he was constantly training and bringing up his staff, trying to say, what is our vision as the Four Seasons? What are we doing differently? And if you talk to people that have gone to Four Seasons around the world, there is a, they've maintained a consistency in their brand that most other hotels can't maintain. And I think that's because, they're again, they're back to their vision, mission, values. And so a lot of their decisions come from their mission, vision, values, rather than a standard operations manual. And I think there can be an authentic connection between the, uh, hopefully, ideally, there is an authentic connection between the vision, mission, values and the branding. Mm. And, yeah, that's and the then, when it's you know, everybody is motivated and inspired by this vision, then the customer service is better, then the, you know, the whole approach is better that everyone takes within the organisation. That impacts everyone externally well, I remember as one well. conference organiser hearing, uh, you know, in your words, bullshit, you know, we're ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen and 
they got this whole spiel about what a great hotel we are. And she said she saw the conf- she saw the hotel conference person walk behind the door and yell and scream at the staff. Mm. And she said, oh, well, that's that is just purely marketing crap. Yeah, right. But you know, hopefully, if you can actually try and live it out, then that's a different thing. So how do you do that if the living it out is not about like, oh, we embody the spirit of the brand and we have blue sky thinking, but the embody but what you do requires an extremely high level of what you just talked about, which is consistency and discipline and excellence. So we have to empower people. you think about like another multi-billionaire, Jeff Bezos, who has made his fortune by getting everything precisely right. When you order something from his company, it's going to get there on time. It will be what you what it said it was. Like it's going to be a seamless experience. It's, you're not going to have to faff around with your passwords. It's not going to be complicated. You're not going to know, not know what button to click. You're not going to know, not know when it's coming. Like that's all just about the customer experience. And with a brand, I assume, like Mercedes as well, that would be highly important, I would imagine, to Mercedes executives to be renowned as being a company that you can take to the bank. You know what you're going to get. There's not, it's not, they're not going to deliver a car like Tesla does where, oh, we love Elon Musk and Teslas are amazing, but everyone is a little bit different and the doors don't quite close perfectly, right? A Mercedes doors are going to close perfectly every single time. I assume that that's the... That's what they want. So how Not do you according get... to my brother-in-law, but that's another, that's <laughs> another that's, story. Like that's the brand yeah, yeah, of the, the reliability, of the vehicle, right? Is so you need yeah. both. You need, you know, that really great vision, a really great, you know, original product, and you also need that reliability consistency. And that's why it's so hard to achieve because you'll often get, you know, reliable, consistent companies that just can't make right, it in the market. When you say both, I mean, how do you... Uh, well, we no, all know, everyone knows you need both, but how do you do that? Is well, it, do, you silo to, do you silo both? To, do, you, do you have a well, creative, Google, creative well, yeah, group Google's, and then a... Google split off and created Am- uh, Alphabet for that right. reason because they were realising they were meant to be a creative company. They got too big. They got too bureaucratic because all companies go through cycles. Uh, you know, and so they, they get too big. They get too bureaucratic. They fall over themselves. They, as Jim Collins talks about, they get successful and then they get complacent with their successfulness so google created alphabet but let's just go back to amazon for a minute right they you know you you talked about the procedure side of it but jeff bezos used to start every meeting with an empty chair and that empty chair was the customer so again it's back to the it's back to the narration and the story that he used to tell so you've jumped into the procedural side of amazon but what what people may may not know is that that empty chair was always there so every decision that was ever made was what does the customer want and and it may well be the customer wants uh, they want it on time. They want it to work. But it, it goes back to what does the customer want. The procedure follows after that. Mm. And that's when you tighten it all up. And that that was probably creativity to come up with an idea of putting that empty chair in the room. And lots of companies are now following that concept. And there is a concept called um, ambidexterity. And there's different ways that you can embed ambidexterity in the organisation. So that is a focus on both exploration and preservation. So it can be done through different departments and having different areas of focus, which is contextual or structural ambidexterity. And then you can have contextual ambidexterity, which is about individuals and individual teams all being able to become ambidextrous in their thinking or have paradoxical cognition. So an individual is able to stretch in both directions, able to challenge their teammates, and together they're able to perform both areas so it's it can be embedded in different ways and it can play out in different ways that are much deeper than just saying siloing and saying well you do the innovation and the R&D and you do you know the finance you can also bring that all together but I know you don't like me putting you on the spot but you'll see a COO story where you embedded yourself in an organization and watched the conversations between a visionary CEO 
and a more preserving CO, I thought was really interesting. Because right, one without so the other would have completely I've, died. I've done some in-depth case studies, ethnographic research, where I've spent time embedded in organisations. And there was one organisation in particular that I spent almost two years um, visiting that organisation, on sitting wall. in on all the executive meetings uh, and just interviewing and, and observing all the staff at all levels and clients and so on. And there was a really interesting dynamic between the COO and the CEO. So originally there was an entrepreneurial founder who'd started the organisation, was highly innovative and uh, highly successful and created a, a you know, large number of services for their clients. But the culture was falling apart. So there were individuals who were feeling like there's no systems in place. You know, we can't support this long term. So the board brought in a COO as a complementary figure to help bring that balance. And between them, there was this really fascinating dynamic where the CEO was quite resistant at first because he was used to having his own way, doing his own thing and just pushing and ahead. So, and the CEO on his own and would have been unsustainable. It was, it was unsustainable. There, was, there were huge issues and the organisation would have fallen apart without some sort of intervention. The COO came in and he was actually, I could identify that he was um, very ambidextrous. He had this paradoxical cognition because I heard in his language, he'd talk to the CEO and he'd say, I realise we need to be highly innovative. I realise that we need to continue to serve our clients and we also <laughs> need to be thinking about how we're going to ensure stability over the long term to support those services. And he worked hard to behind the scenes just to make sure that everything was set up so that the CEO could become more of a figurehead for the organisation. He could go ahead and attract the funding that they needed, et cetera, and he could ensure that the staff you know, had the support that they needed, they had the systems in place to continue over the long term. And that organisation is still running well today. Mm, so you can see how well, that ambidexterity comes in. Sustainability. Yeah. Because yeah. I know yeah. that was your first question. Yeah, right? certainly. I mean, as you, as you talk about that, it makes me wonder whether or not there are any lessons for governments in this, in particular, the shifting of focus away from process to what the customer needs. Like the, you know, the opposite of the experience of using Amazon is the experience of using a government department website where you're trying <laughs> to log on and apply for your well, I had a vouchers go, I, for whatever it is, right? One of my yeah. son's soccer dads is a, you know, high up in the airport security system. And I said, I am so sick of filling in paper forms in right. Australia. Why the hell are we doing it? And he said, you're not the client, the government is. And right. I thought, that's interesting. I'm not the customer at the airport. Yes. Border security is not about me. It's about right. – so I thought that was an interesting one. So mm. they don't care how long I have to sit in a queue for. Mm. Um, I remember going to hospital the other day and I said, there's no – there's no, you know, sitting in the emergency room, there's no, there's no Wi-Fi, um, there's no charging ports. This is a brand-new hospital. And she said, what do you think we are? We're a hospital. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's thought, right. Well, heck, who designed we that? We do one thing. Don't, don't <laughs> let Americans hear about what socialised medicine is. Well, yeah. <laughs> You'd get your Wi-Fi in a fancy fancy Beverly Hills hospital. Well, that's sure. true. But, you know, we're all Maybe sitting on Jeffrey plastic. Jeffrey Edelstein. <laughs> all sitting on, well, that's why Jeffrey Edelstein came along. That's and, why he you did know, so well. An outlier. Mm. For a time. <laughs> for a time. But, um, yeah, you're all sitting on plastic chairs. I mean, you're in an emergency ward. You can we have a little bit of comfort I while we're it. about to? I love it. So, but that's right. It's just not in the minds of, of bureaucratic people. And, and anything that gets too big, and that's moving into the country or the government side, when it gets too big, it loses its innovation. What was it? 40, I, know, I know you didn't like too many stats, but I'm not going to read this one. 40% of um, companies, when they go public, lose their innovation. 
So by what measure? Just by the fact that I think they measure it by their tech ability, their patents they, um, that they're able to register. But it's, I think it was, a, I, don't, I don't know who I'll have to look I mean, is that also, is there a potential explanation there that they become more cautious because they Possibly. have more of a fiduciary yes. responsibility they have to, they have to, answer to, to their shareholders and nobody yeah. wants to. So you could say they, sk- whoops, they skid right across to the preservation side of the road. Yeah, right. Um, and, right. and that's okay because if they kept going on the exploration side of the road, they may well, as they take a corner, skid off it. And mm. we all know that that good Formula One car takes a racing line. They go to the left, they come across, they go to the right. And that's what they've got to keep doing backwards and forwards. But it has to be a conscious decision, not not, um, not just let's just let it happen and see where we go. So on those four metrics that you were talking about, freedom, collaboration, flexibility, openness, which ones are we doing well at as a culture, as a society, <laughs> as a country? Who's we? <laughs> you, Australia? I suppose Australia. I suppose, the, I suppose if one can generalise about the Anglophone world or even the Western world. Pardon the interruption. I just want to tell you about a video uh, that I want you to check out. It features the one and only Chuck Norris. You remember Chuck Norris? The man's in his 80s. And, uh, you know, I'm no spring chicken. Nonetheless, I care about my health. I want to live a long time. I want to, uh, want to be healthy. I don't always get as many fruits and vegetables and herbs that are supposed to increase my energy levels in my own diet. So I saw this video that Chuck Norris has made. He's kicking butt. He's uh, working out. He's staying active. He has heaps of energy left over for his grandkids and so on. And he says that he, he is achieving all this by making one single change. And he feels like he's in his 50s. Go to mymorningkick.com slash josh and watch Chuck Norris's video right now. That's mymorningkick.com slash josh, M-Y-M-O-R-N-I-N-G-K-I-C-K dot com slash josh. Western worlds, uh, well, where you have de- democracies, you have freedom and uh, ideally <laughs> and um the, the countries that have democracies uh, do produce more patents. So it has been, there has been a direct link with innovation. Outcomes. So there's, I mean, there's political freedom, obviously, mm-hmm. but then there's also a kind of a cultural freedom, right? And an ability, yes. a willingness to tolerate ideas. Yes, to, well, diver- openness to diversity. Right. Silicon and Valley didn't just happen. And I know there's so many countries and even where we live in Manly, they were going to have their own Silicon Valley. You know, mm. everyone wants to do it. Now in, Miami is Silicon well, Valley, apparently. Well, everyone wants to do it. Population. I'm, I'm saying that facetiously. All these, all, these, wants to Cali- all these people who don't want to be in California anymore because yeah. they're too right wing. Didn't they go they to hate, Texas? They, well, some of them went to Texas and some of them went to Miami. Now okay. they're calling it but, a new Silicon Valley. It's not going to happen. Richard, well, what I was saying is Richard Florida studied what attracts the creative class. So where do creative people go? I mean, they make up a huge proportion of the po- of the financial population and Silicon Valley happened he said because and creative cultures happened because of three because of three T's talent technology and tolerance and so if you look at Silicon Valley it had all three it was tolerant of certain lifestyles it had the tech and it had the talent and when those three things happen together that's when you're going to get a a burst of innovation and and what's going to happen is more creative people are going to be attracted into it so you can't just say we're going to open up an innovation lab or an innovation city or an innovation hub in a suburb throw Mm. money at it I mean we've been you know the funny thing is we've been to companies where they've taken us up to the top floor and shown us the innovation lab and it's like gobsmacking amazing where did they get the money from this and they've got the lounge and the beanbag chairs and all the creative stuff and then the guy takes us into a corner and says but Andrew it's not working 
Mm. And we're saying, oh, why? I said, what, what have you done for the culture of innovation? Oh, nothing. We've just created the lab and we thought, you know, build it and they will come. Well, what would you do for the culture of innovation? Well, I think you've got to start with what kills the creativity in the first place. And so, you know, with, is it fear? Is it control? Is it um, narrow-mindedness? Look at all those things and address the issues that block people's creativity. It's back to our original question. Why are 98% of children creative and 2% of adults? What's happened to us? Right when we need it, because the World Economic Forum report for the fifth time in a row has said creative thinking is in the top creative three. Creative and thing, critical thinking is in the top three things that are needed in, as we go forward. Particularly with AI coming in, creative thinking is probably the one thing that AI is not going to be able to actually, you know, overtake too quickly. But so, what do you do in practice? I mean, it's all in very terms well. Of to- well, I mean, you know, so the bloke, the bloke standing there with his fancy lounge, right, and he's oh, saying well, no one's no one's creative. So what's, well, what's you the have next to have step? A co- well, I mean, you have to go through stages of uh, dangerous, what do you call it, safe space for dangerous ideas? Yeah, so, yeah, that's right. <laughs> you have yeah. to create a place where people can openly question, where people can openly challenge, a place where people can accept ambiguity, a place where we're using both sides of our brain, not just the left and right side of the brain, a place where people can freely explore different paths. I mean, it doesn't. A, you're, what you're talking about doesn't feel to me like the preside like the prevailing attitude in corporate no in the corporate maybe that's world. why we keep getting work because right. and yeah. funny banks are some of our biggest clients and you think mm. you know anyone that goes into banking did not go into banking because they wanted to be creative right. and so i'm sitting you know with a, a group of 30 people in the room that are all left brain analytical people saying creative thinking is the last thing i want to do and i've got to say well you know money's money i know you can't other than the gfc you can't sort of fiddle with it too much but are there, are there ways that we can use our creative thinking to solve different problems? And we've got to get people that are not necessarily feeling that they were born creative or feeling that they're creative to start thinking. And that might be helping them to understand it starts with asking questions. So it's a mindset. It's a, an awareness of how to become more curious, how to extend your imagination, how to have that confidence, how to learn to be more flexible, how to learn to you know take advantage of that freedom. And it's a skill set as well. So you can actually teach these skills, as I've said before. You can, mm. you can give people models and tools that help them to open up their thinking. Uh, so there's there's a lot of things that you can do through coaching, through workshops, etc. And we've done this over a two-year period in organisations. We've actually had this really intensive period of um, assessing what the challenges are, what are the blocks, what are the opportunities, going in with a coaching program, mentoring, workshops. And we've seen a huge culture change. So up to 30% of uh, people in an organisation feel that they are more creative, that their team is more creative, that the organisation is more creative um, after they've been through a program like this. Mm. So it is possible to make that sort of change and to see a real difference. But it often starts with a leader. Right. Yes. I mean, I, I, one, I remember one workshop where the leader engaged us to do it, one of these long-term programs, and he comes in at the beginning of the workshop and condescendingly almost pats everyone on the head and says, enjoy your training. First of all, I hate the word training because we're not just implying a skill. We're better facilitate. A couple of days later, he comes back, you know, there's great ideas all around the room and, and also terrible ideas because brainstorming, a lot of it, most of it's crap. And he comes in and he freaks out as soon as he sees it because he looks at all the stupid ideas. And he sits in the room and each team was meant to present back to him. And the first team was so excited and they're all enthusiastic and they get up and they present back and he just sits there with his arms folded and he could just read it all over his face. 
by the time the fourth team got up, they were all pushing each other, saying, "You do it, you do it. I don't mm. want to get up." He killed. He killed his own creativity within twenty minutes, right? Just by his body language and the fact that he felt he didn't need to be there. Mm. So you have to work with the whole culture at every level, and you have to obviously have support from the top. Yeah, I'll give you another example, and that is an organisation that I worked with over a couple of years again, and I was brought in by the GM who wanted everyone to be more creative. So they were working on agricultural solutions for impoverished farmers in Indonesia. So it was really important work that they were doing, and he wanted them to think about what was the individual farmers' needs and how could they come up with something that would support the farmers, given that they had a lack of resources given that you know there were going to be certain challenges environmental challenges and so on and so he'd say why aren't they creative why aren't they creative and I just had to watch one meeting executive meeting see him sitting in the corner and I saw his team come up with a creative idea and say how about we do this and again he'd sit with his arms folded similar similar sort of response and say, oh, no, we can't do that. We don't have the budget. Oh, no, mm. we've done that before. And he just shut down the creative ideas. Is that so a cultural – I mean, quite outside of the culture of the organisation. Are there, are there differences? Some countries are probably more – you know, I mean, if we're going to use the bell curve because we've got to be very careful of the outliers. He wasn't Indonesian, by the way. No. <laughs> he was not. No. No, and, and, no he was a foreigner. Yes. and, and <laughs> I won't name the culture. A, a country that's very strong on processes <laughs> right. that invented – a that worked with a car that we just talked about. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> but, but, you know, I mean – but, but and, you know, Not <laughs> well, each country's got its strengths and weaknesses, but in that case, it, it, it very much shut down the process right? because he just couldn't see it, even though he asked for it. I mean, it's interesting. There's a, Anyone who's lived in different countries know, know, knows this. I mean, the difference between the permission to fr- speak freely, sir, and, the, and the, whether it's a culture of yes or a culture of no. I mean, this was once articulated to me about... Um, you know, Aussie expats abroad often will often articulate something along the lines of feeling like Australia is a bit of a culture of no. That the reason why they left is because nanny state. <laughs> well, it's it's not. It's it's even more than nanny state. I mean, it's it's more that if you talk to Australians in New York or London or you know Paris or Berlin or Los Angeles or Singapore, they'll often have a sense that you suggest something here and people are like, oh yeah, good on you. Or like that's not the way that we do things. Or but you're, it you're is it related to cutting down the po- tall poppies? Maybe. Yeah, it's a bit of a tall yeah. poppy thing. Whereas I mean, you, when I was in New York and you talk to, I mean, any harebrained idea you come up with, the response is invariably fantastic. How are we going to do it? How well, are you going to do it? What are you going to? You know, a, there is a culture a, a, of optimism. You know, we'll have yeah. to put a disclaimer here that you know, as you said, the more cultures you see, the more you get a big picture perspective. So if you're living inside one culture, you can't see it. But I know that the three of us haven't. But if you do look at the American culture from the outside, which a lot of Americans can't probably do because many of them don't even have a passport. Um, but if you are looking at it, America is very optimistic. They talk yeah. about haves and the, and the soon-to-haves. And, you know, and <laughs> it's a, a lot land of, of opportunity. Yeah, it's a land yeah, of opportunity. Yeah, they, all, they, they think that way. It's, yeah. it's a culture yeah. of yes. It's yeah. a culture yeah. of how we and that's do great. it. That, that and I think we're them... a culture of pessimists. Right. Well, yeah. We put we're, people down. We, know, well, yeah. we put people down, but I also just think we've got it pretty easy here. We don't necessarily mm. need to strive. We're at the top of that, you know, Ray Dalio's curve of great nations that have become successful. Who knows when the fall's going to start to happen. <laughs> and hopefully got, not too. Well, hopefully not in our time. We only get to see, you know, we only see these curves happen once in a lifetime. So when they do happen, we're surprised. You know, right now we're seeing some countries rising and some falling that are that we thought would never happen. Um, but then you've got, you know, countries like Singapore that are desperately, you know, they send their kids to school for almost 16 hours a day, seven days a week for education, mm. whereas we're lucky if we can get six hours out of the kid. <laughs> um, you know, they may not become very creative, 
but they they know what it, they know what it is to want more. Whereas in Australia, we're at the top of that curve. We've had it great. Do we really need it? Do we need to come up with a new idea? Probably not. I mean, this is the thesis. Works. This is the original thesis of the lucky country, isn't yeah. it? That Donald Horns, uh, you exactly. know, Australians pridely call ourselves the lucky country, yeah. not realizing that the term was coined as an insult by Donald. Oh, Horn. was it? Didn't yeah. even know that. Donald Horn wrote it as a, you know, as a saying. Well, you've, it's the country that has has been blessed with mineral riches and agricultural riches and tremendous space and a wonderful lifestyle. So it's never been forced. Yeah, it's, to, it's never been forced to do anything of its, off its own back. Yeah, it's so just been able to, go to sit and get six. fat and uh, we, you know, do nothing. We, we met kids in the Philippines that would walk three hours to school through a war zone just to get an education. I mean, I, I barely get kids to go to school you know, <laughs> because the surf's good. Yeah. I mean, it, I'm also reminded of talking to a, a Qantas pilot about uh, a, an in-air, a mid-air incident where the first officer or the, you know, someone who was below the level of the captain uh, chose to speak up and criticise the captain that became a... I can't remember what Korea. the incident was. South Korea. Yeah. Well, yeah. That, do you, know this? Do you remember of, the yeah, story? One of them chose... Yes. No, they didn't choose to speak up and... This was the Korean Airlines yes, yes. crash. Because of the yeah. ratio of power distance between the leader and the non-leader. So in an Asian society, it's it's all very hierarchical. Um, and so they didn't want to speak up. Yeah, and so anyway, this, this yeah. you know, it sounds a bit racist, but this white Western captain was saying he doesn't fly East Asian Airlines because he doesn't he doesn't believe that there's a sufficiently robust tradition of uh, criticising the captain. And if the captain's wrong, then you're going to get get into troubles on an East Asian airline that you might not get into if you're on a North American carrier or a European or Australian carrier where there's a more where you're more encouraged to speak up and criticise your superiors. Yeah. I don't know if there's any truth to that. I don't know if they've changed, but that was certainly the story behind that accident. Yeah, interesting. And you can imagine in Australian cockpit, We'd an Australian airline. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we're egalitarian. What the, what the hell are you we, doing, you know, mate? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you say well, it like it is. <laughs> if we bring it back to the innovation, you know, in that case, Australia is not bad at innovating because we will challenge each other. I mean, how many other podcasts like you are around? You know, mm. you've got the hard talk in in BBC, but there's not a lot around that will are there to, you know, bring you in and challenge you. Mm. And that probably won't happen, again, I'm generalising in Asia as much because of the hierarchical system and the respect of your elders. So we, you know, we don't have respect of elders. So there's good and bad. Yeah. Um, the, down, the downside of that culture of respecting your elders is you're not going to challenge them. You're not going to, you know, in school, you're not encouraged back to the schooling. You're not encouraged to ask questions, to challenge the teacher. The teacher's the boss. They say what you believe. And at the end of the semester, you spit it back. Whereas here, teacher's not the boss. We can tell them to piss off if we feel like it. Um, and so th- there's the good and bad side mm. of it. So in the airline industry, it's not a good thing. I mean, in the so and in the broad kind of culture wars around cancel culture and wokeness and all this sort of, you know, social justice and so on, you do hear, and one feels that certainly in the corporations that I've been in, a, a certain tightening of, uh, of, of the buttocks and uh, tightening of the conversation <laughs> around what people feel able to say. Uh, I mean, I'm interested in your thoughts about how one balances the, the need for equity and social justice with the need for people to be able to also talk. because we wonder when that conversation was going to when that was going to come up. <laughs> are, we, are we on I to think... the uh, free listener got paid? <laughs> I think it has to happen a bit, especially in Australia where we got away with a lot for a long time. So there has to become an awareness of um, racist issues, sexist issues. We have to have it at the front of our mind. 
yes, maybe it's it's gone to an extreme and maybe that's how the pendulum swings for a while until it becomes more part of our consciousness, more part of our language, more part of the way we frame things. When it becomes more natural, then hopefully we'll get a bit more of an equilibrium. We so until one, then... So you've done well. You're going to pick a fight between the two of us. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I, I think... This is part of that stretching. You need that tension between the two sides. And for now, I think there needs to be a respect for the people who are saying these things and, and requesting that we think about, you know, what's the language you're using with me, about me, to me? And it's time to just say, okay, I, I need to listen. I need to think about that. I need to consider that. And Once we you've need to listened and considered, to it, and considered it and then don't agree with them, then what happens? If it's about them, I think they have the right to say, I, I would prefer not to be referred to in this way. But what do you mean about, about them? I mean, it's really, it really is about an individual. Is a particular it's usually, word, for example? That, a you know, particular that, word, a particular phrase. Right. No, I, think we're most, I mean, I'm mostly talking about, I'm not saying whether or not you can call someone a tart or something mm. in the office yeah. or whether you can say, hey, toots, but and slap them on the bum. So we have improved. You did that yeah. for a long time. Yeah, what but, are you saying then? Well, well the downside um, is going too far, as, as what I know, you know, having listened yeah, to Yeah, I'm not even like sure that. it's going too far. No, but when in the we sense do go too far, if, if it gets to the point where the two extremes are not listening to each other, they're talking over the top of each other, we're polarising each other, and we're now back to banning books again. Right. And therefore we're not having that challenge of inquiry and questioning and we're free space where we can talk about ideas because if we say the wrong thing so someone on the two extremes are going to shut us down oh you can't have that conversation anymore and yeah. that's going to stop the innovation because we're going to be too afraid to talk about things yeah i mean so i, I don't think anyone should ever be required to be in the presence of someone who's using a slur against them or something like that um to, we got rid of that a while ago. Uh, that's, uh, that, it's not recent history that we haven't been able, we haven't been slapping women on the asses and calling them toots. Um, but uh, there seems to have been, a, a, I think, a divergence of um, social, even just since sort of maybe two thousand and eight. You know, Obama era vision of social justice, which was a sort of uh, Martin Luther King vision of social justice or a Gandhi or Mandela vision of uh, universalism, let's say. And now there's, um, I would say, a new ideology, which is not just, it's not that it's a good idea gone too far. I actually think it's a different idea. It's mm. an idea that the way to truly achieve justice is to think of ourselves as tribes pitted against each other, fighting over a finite pie and that the, that that war of all against all is inevitable and will endure into the future as long as you know as long Does as humans exist. Does it have to be a finite pie? I mean, is that is that the? Well, I think that's the assumption. Is that, is, that, is that the mindset that's locking us in? That, yeah, I mean that, that may be the that yeah. may be the cognitive er error. So then yeah. the question is, in that environment, I'm talking, for example, not about using a certain word, but about an HR department requiring that. Um, I don't know, you fill out a diversity quota spreadsheet at the end of every, uh, you know, session or something, or, mm. or something like that. Or, you know, whether or not that's good is, in, is, is you can have that as one question. Whether or not you have a right to argue against it being good or say, a, you know, a land, a land acknowledgement at the beginning of every Zoom meeting that you, you have, an acknowledgement of country. Um, we're, no longer, we're no longer having discussions about whether or not that's wise, we're having discussions about whether it's permissible to question whether it's wise. So is that corrosive, is that corrosive to, 
the free expression of creativity? Or well, is I think if, we, if we're not allowed to question things, again, it, it, it's risky because people will quickly get labelled for even just questioning something. Um, that is going to destroy the innovation creativity process because we want to have that ability where we can people can freely talk about it, but not, as you said, if it's labelling people or, or judging people, but we still should need to be able to have those places where we can throw around the ideas. And I think there needs to be a bit of patience and respect and understanding while we're navigating these challenges because, yes, we're pulling in one direction, like I said, and it does seem like it's becoming a bit militaristic. In some senses, it may feel like that. So you would hope on both sides that there is, you know, a willingness to listen to the other perspective and say, okay, well, you know, I appreciate that you're coming from this perspective and that there are certain elements that that are correct in what you're saying and I'm coming from this perspective and I hope that you understand that, you know, we're putting this in place for a while so that everybody becomes aware of the need to consider where we are and what we're doing. So it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult ongoing conversation. I think, I think where companies get it wrong, and this is public knowledge, but when we were working with Google, they got in trouble for what was called the Google bus, which was full of, you know, 30 people. That were, 29 of them were white and in their 30s. And, and so, they were bust down from, <laughs> down from San, San Francisco yeah. to Silicon Valley. Yeah. And they bypassed the local cultures. And yeah. so they got a, out of, out of the, the bus, you know, 70% was white male. <laughs> so hmm. there was a lack of diversity. Yeah. So, so but, but, but I think they got it wrong. From, from their perspective, it was a PR issue. But from our perspective, diversity allows innovation. And, and if it's, it's not about saying we want diversity because we've got to be seen to be doing the right thing. What we need to say is back to the narrative, we need diversity if we want to survive and be innovative because we need to be exposed to different ideas. And Google's interesting because they've you know, now created their own campus where you can eat, live, sleep, go to the gym, mm. wash and bump into more white males in their 30-year-olds, um, all thinking the same thing. And there's, even though Google actually is a paradox, they created the canteen so people could bump into each other. They didn't do it just because they're nice. They've got this famous canteen where they know that people can from different departments can bump into each other. So that they get the 10 out of 10 because they know that that bumping in but of ideas works. But it's an internal openness <laughs> mm. and externally they've sort of shut themselves off and become isolated. Well, they've realised it, so they're onto it. And I know right. about this because I worked with Google at um, the Silicon Valley office and to their credit, they realised the bad press they were getting was was going to be an issue and they worked hard on coming up with creative solutions. That's why I was you know, part of this process. So they, they've looked into how to approach this diversity issue and initially maybe it's going to be quotas. Um, maybe that's a, a way of just recorrecting the balance and I think, it needs you know, to be, it, to me, it, it should be deeper than quotas. It should be we actually of course, need diversity. Eventually, of we course. We need the diversity to keep the innovation Until happening. Until that mm. happens. Well, I mean, also diversity. We're just missing those people in the room. I mean, the devil's in the details on what diversity means. Exactly. Like diversity mm. of what? Di- yeah. Like yeah. diversity. Yeah. I know, income. Or, yeah. you know, people talk about a diverse television show that's all black people. Diversity in, for some people just means, is a, is a proxy for non White, yeah. straight, so or if male. We, if we, that's right. So if we just right. go I back mean, to the concept, if you really want, to, if, you want if what you're talking about is you want to strengthen the institution or the organisation through a diversity of ideas and yes. experiences and backgrounds, it's coming from people from different backgrounds. Yeah, well, it's more then, likely if it's going to come from different yeah. backgrounds. But right, the, the, but I can point to television shows on certain public broadcasters which are scrupulously diverse and have panelists who are always saying the same thing in furious true. agreement. Yes, um, so they're, the they're not as diverse so as they think they are. So actually, they need to think about the principle. Well, not, they're not intellectually not the, diverse. They look. Yeah. It's a great yeah. casting. You yeah. know, it's great. They're great at casting yeah. uh, in terms yeah. of people looking different. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, so let's go to the principles. Yeah, um, right. it's diversity of thought, and and that should technically play out to diversity of of 
other things because you'd hope that, you know, different ways of looking at things through different cultures are going to create the diversity of thought. But from an innovation perspective, not the PR perspective and not what's right by society, from an innovation perspective, there's so much study that diversity allows innovation and lack of diversity Kills innovation. I mean, Google's an interesting case study on just going back to what you were saying about, uh, you know, there are certain things that you shouldn't be allowed to say that are offensive to to other people, to your colleagues in the workplace, and me saying that that's not quite the issue. I, I don't, I don't think because I think we all agree that that is a fair, is fair enough, and nobody should be insulted. I think there are a lot of people who <laughs> don't agree, but anyway. Really? Yeah. There are a lot of people who think that you should be able to insult yes. their colleagues. Well, they don't understand that it is an insult. They don't understand that. Well, I suppose words it depends what we're talking about, right? Very powerful. Yeah, what's an insult to you might not be an insult. Yeah. Might, I, I might think say everybody that, agrees yeah. that you can't you can't call a black person the N word. You can't call a gay person the F word. I've heard you people can't who call don't a woman agree with that. The B word. I've heard people who don't agree with well, that. Well, they are in any major organization, they would be fine. They're out of touch. True. Yes, I, I appreciate True. that. There are people who don't understand it. There are some people who don't understand it. Right, but I mean that—that's not. Yeah. That's not even on the table of no. of real conversations that are being <laughs> that are being yeah. had in organizations. I mean, they're out, and rightly so. Um, but Google is interesting because uh, you know when they did their, you know, you remember the James Damore yes. episode yes. where you know they invited. Uh, contributions about why there was an underrepresentation of women in STEM fields and how they could create greater gender parity. And one of their engineers said, "Well, I think there are probably you know biological reasons why women aren't as interested in these things as men are." And he was turfed out out on his ear. I, well, okay, so is that the? Well, he was trying to have well, again. He was is that the kind to, of openness and freedom? No, that we so they very to. very quickly went to the preservation side. Google didn't they? I say, well, boy, if we have too much of this free speech. Uh, in, in their opinion, it was too much free speech from mine. You yeah. know, I think well, in the opinion of the mob on Twitter that they were afraid yeah. of, right? Well, that's right. So now, the, again, now we've got this other sort of terrible thing that's that's driving us, and that is our, you know, our, our what do you call it, the way we like to be seen, or again, PR. So may, maybe they had to do it, even whether they agreed with it or not, which is a shame because it, it's it's you know it's a, certainly an extremely controversial conversation. But but to shut it up is not going to solve the problem. Do you agree? It's a shame that there's a lack of respect and the lack of understanding and a lack of high-level But the people who find him would say he's dialogue. exhibiting a dramatic lack of respect to women. Well, then you come down to science versus opinion, don't you? And that, that gets us into a very muddy You would hope field. you would have a rational conversation about it and refer to evidence-based research and, rather than becoming emotional about it. And I think that's what happens. It quickly be, it escalates into an emotional And then people take sides discussion. and no longer do we yeah. have that... You know, mm. safe conversation anymore. It's it's a it's a us versus them. Yeah. So somehow it has to be facilitated. It, it, that's what it needs. It almost needs a professional outside facilitator to come in and 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 have the conversations through. And if James turned out to be a, a, a you know a um what do you call it? a not racist asshole. No, <laughs> <laughs> If he did turn out to be, you know, deep down a sexist person, then, right. then the facilitation process would bring that out. If, on the other hand, his intentions were 100% pure to try and understand why you're in a situation like that, then that's fine. I mean, when Jared Diamond wrote his book, Guns, Gems and Steel, which is, you know, to me, one of the most incredible anthropological researches on why some societies moved ahead and others, I think at one stage he had to have bodyguards outside his mm. house. All he was doing was anthropological research. I mean, the guy lived in New Guinea for so many years, looking at tribes and... And he was a... And they hated him, why? Because it, because it was he an apologist his, for Western he, supremacy? No, he made these... Well, he wasn't an apologist. He was saying... I mean, tech, that was the argument. Well, his argument was when tech meets tradition, tech wipes it out. He wasn't necessarily saying that's a good 
good thing. He was saying, looking at history, this has happened over and over and again mm. with, with societies that, that it wipes it out. He wasn't necessarily making it as a great, let's do it, let's, let's round it out. He was an anthropologist and a historian and was looking at why some, some countries, and, some countries were, and societies were getting ahead of others. But, you know, looking at his intentions were, seemed to be very pure. But nevertheless, the, the, the extreme mobs got a hold of him and he had to have bodyguards at, at mm. the age of 80. So I don't know if there's a couple of them that have written these type of books and yeah, had to have yeah. bodyguards outside their house simply because they've tried to research facts. So as long as we have that sort of mentality, we're not going to be innovative. We're not going to move ahead. Now, I've done, uh, I've done a quiz that you sent me, which is uh, like, what is this, a, a kind of a personality test? What do you call it? Well, it's not looking at personality per se. It's looking at behaviours. So, it's and, not a quiz. It's an assessment. But <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's, it's mirroring back it's to you how you answer questions according to, you know, do you typically have more of an exploration mindset or more of a preservation mindset? And were we surprised with yours? Oh, I see. Okay, now we're going to reveal this uh, for the paid subscribers. Uh, okay. on the paid ah, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> so uh, everyone, who's, everyone who's not, <laughs> who's not a Substack well, subscriber. Well, if, if they've listened to your page, then they're obviously junkies of yours. So, <laughs> exactly. so they're going to want to just hang <laughs> on and see. I want to know. Who is you can Josh? subscribe on, that, on Substack, but, but thanks for listening us, Even though your results came in 30 seconds before we <laughs> met you. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so what were the... Uh, what what, do you, what, is this, what is this measure and uh, what, what was my result? To hear the rest of this conversation, go to uncomfortableconversations.substack.com slash listen and you will get your own personal premium podcast feed with at least three extra episodes of the podcast every month and heaps of extra stuff, including the remainder right now of the fabulous conversation you've just been hearing. If it was worth listening to this much of, don't rob yourself of the rest. Pull out your phone right now and search for uncomfortable conversations with the substack.